This is Masechet Megillah, Daf Kafhei. We are on Daf Kaf Dalid Amudbet. We are on the last line of that uh, Amud, which is the uh, last word, actually, of the last line with the new Mishnah. It says, HaOmer Yevarchucha Tovim. If a person says, may those who are good bless you, this is considered a heretical statement to put in the tefillah. Rashi says, that that excludes wicked people from praising Hashem. And really, all people should praise Hashem, just as we learn that the ketoret, the incense, contains some foul-smelling Ingredients to show you that even those who are foul-smelling are supposed to join together with the community in praising Hashem. Or, Al Kantzipor Yagiwachamecha, your mercy reaches the bird's nest. Vialtov Shemecha, for good your name should be remembered. Modim Modim, or if he says Modim twice, Mishatkinoto, we silence such a chazan. If somebody interprets the prohibitions on sexual matters in a metaphoric way, we silence him. If somebody interprets the prohibition of the Torah that you should not pass your child through the fire of Molech, means that it means do not impregnate an Aramean woman, meaning it's a reference to not having relations with a non-Jew. We silence him with a very strong rebuke. Rashi says, he uproots the pasuk from its meaning, which is a type of idolatry of passing a child through a uh, through the fire, as opposed to um, and and all, uh, on one hand it it minimizes a biblical prohibition, but it also makes it seem that someone who has relations with a non-Jew should have karet and should have uh, be executed by the court, which is not correct either. So basically, he makes incorrect interpretations of the Torah. Similarly, uh, taking, a, taking the prohibitions on uh, sexual matters and making them a metaphor would be like saying that uh, it means not to disrespect your parents. When it says not to uncover their nakedness, it means not to disrespect them. That's, again, minimizing what the Torah is actually trying to prohibit. And the Gemara says, We understand why you're not allowed to say modim twice because it sounds like you are thanking two different gods. We understand why you can't say, may your name be remembered for only the good things, which implies that we only praise Hashem for the good and not for the bad, which we learned in the Mishnah. That a person has to bless Hashem for the bad, just like he blesses Him for the good. In other words, we acknowledge Hashem no matter what happens to us. Sometimes we say, we bless Hashem even when things happen to us that we don't like because we recognize it's all part of God's plan. We don't only bless God when things happen that we do like. What's the reason why uh, a chazan cannot say that the mercy of God reaches the bird's nest? There were two rabbis in the West, meaning in Israel, that debated it. Rabbi Yossi Bar Avin and Rabbi Yossi Bar Zveda. The two Rabbi Yossi's debated it. One says because it makes it sound like Hashem favors certain species. It's putting jealousy in the creation. The other one says because it's reducing the commandments of Hashem to mercy, and they are really just decrees. In other words, it's a reference to the mitzvah of sending away the mother bird before taking the young. 
And by saying that your mercy reaches the bird's nest, it sounds like the purpose of the mitzvah is to have mercy on the bird when really it is just we fulfill it not out of a sense of uh, feelings, certain feelings towards the bird, but because we are fulfilling the will of Hashem. So therefore we don't want to say, uh, we, want, we don't want to make it sound like it's in order to be kind to the bird. The way the Ramban explains it in Chumash is that it means that the purpose of the mitzvah is not to be kind to the bird, but actually to instill within us a certain quality of mercy and compassion. And that's why it would be wrong to say that the, that the mercy of God reaches the bird's nest. In any case, one time a chazan went before Rabbah and he said, he said, you were kind, you had mercy on the bird's nest, have mercy on us. And so the Rabbah said, wow, this uh, student really knows how to impress Hashem. He knows how to, how to uh, praise God. Didn't we learn in the Mishnah that we, we should silence a person who says this? Indeed, that is true. Rabbah knew that. He was just saying what he said to be facetious to test Abaye, to see if Abaye would realize that what the Chazan had said was wrong. This is a very famous, uh, famous story. A Chazan went before Rabbi Chanina, he said the regular Amidah, but then he added, the mighty, and uh, another word for Adir is also the, uh, the, the uh, magnificent, uh, the, the strong, the Chazak, the Amitz, these are all different verbs describing the power and greatness of God. Amarle, he said to him, Have you completed the praise of your master? If it were in these three words, great, mighty, and awesome. If it were not for the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu wrote them in the Torah and the Anshei Knesset the men of the great assembly instituted them to be part of the Tefillah, we wouldn't say those either. And you're going even further. And adding more adjectives. It would be like if a person had millions of golden dinarims. And it should say, according to the text on the side, it should say, or the word shouldn't be there. Uh, is it not an insult to him? In other words, if he had tons of gold and you uh, praised him for having silver, it's an insult. So the, uh, the, the idea that Rambam explains, he says, that's why the word be'elif doesn't appear. It's not a quantitative thing that you only praised him for having a thousand instead of millions. It's a qualitative thing. You praised him for having silver when he has gold. In other words, really the greatness of Hashem is beyond our comprehension. Any words we are using are only uh, very limited because they would give us the sense, they would give us the, the illusion that we really understand Hashem where we don't. And so therefore, the less words of praise we use, the better. Everything is in the hands of heaven except for fear of heaven. Now Israel, what, what does Hashem, your God, ask of you? Only to fear God, etc., etc. The implication is that it's no big deal. What is God asking of you? Just to fear God. Right? So how could he say that it's such a small thing? It's very difficult to achieve your Shemaim. In Legabe Moshe Rabbeinu Miltazutratihi. That's true. By Moshe Rabbe, from Moshe Rabbeinu, it is a small thing. It's like if you ask somebody to borrow a large item and he has it, it's like a small item. Katan Venlo, if you ask him for a small thing and he doesn't even have it, so then it's Dome Alav Kikli Gadol. In other words, if a person has something, it seems small to them. If they don't have it, it seems big, no matter what the actual size. So yeah, to Moshe Rabbeinu, he says to them, What is Hashem asking you? Just to fear God, which to him is a simple thing. 
If a person says Shema Shema, it's like saying Modim Modim. He shouldn't say it twice. There is an objection. It says in the bright that if a person repeats the, the Shema, it's, it's disgraceful. Implying that it's disgraceful, but it doesn't say that if you silence him. So it says, It depends. If you repeat full sentences, so that's considered megune. That's considered to be a, uh, uh, something which is, uh, uh, which is a, uh, Rashi says, Kol teva, uh, If the person repeats each word, so then, it sounds that he's just being a fool. He said, that's just, uh, that's just Migunef. He repeats each word, miltam, milta, vitanela. He says, modim, modim. Or he says, shema, shema. He says the words twice. He says that, en kan mashmout shteru shuyot. Ela migunev sachalu. It just sounds foolish. But if he says the whole thing, modim anachnulach, modim anachnulach, or shema Yisrael, the whole pasuk twice. So then it sounds like he's really acknowledging two different gods. And there you have, uh, that's where you have to silence him. But if he just said the word two times, that's considered to be migune. That's just foolish. He repeats each word, um, and we uh, we don't have to silence him. We just say it's a disgraceful thing to do. Maybe initially he he said the pasuk twice because at first he didn't have kavanah. He didn't have concentration. The second time he did. What is he friends with Hashem that he feels that he can say words without having concentration? That's not an, it, it should say according to the uh, correction. Mi'ika. Is there such a thing as feeling so comfortable with Hashem that you don't have kavanah when you're saying the Shema? How could it be? It says, If he's not concentrating, I'll smack him with a blacksmith's hammer until he concentrates. In other words, it shouldn't be an excuse. Repeating the pasuk is not an option. So you shouldn't be repeating the Shema uh, words uh, because it sounds like you're acknowledging two gods. It doesn't matter what the reason is. You have to take responsibility for having proper kavana when you say the Shema the first time. If a person interprets the sexual prohibitions of the Torah to be a metaphor, we silence him. Rav Yosef, Rav Yosef taught, instead of t- taking the nakedness of father and nakedness of mother, literally, he interprets it as the disrespect to these family members. Instead of, uh, and meaning that the Torah is just uh, prohibiting us from disrespecting our family members, not from having relations with them. Again, if a person says that giving of your seed to Molech doesn't mean an idolatrous ritual, but means imp- uh, having relations with with a non-Jewish woman, then we also uh, consider him a, a serious, uh, it's a serious uh, transgression and we silence him with a strong rebuke. Tana Dever Rabbi Ishmael said, the Shiva Rabbi Ishmael said, Be'Yisrael ha'bala goyav odid ben avodah zohar ketuv medaber. Now this seems to be explaining what the person would say that is wrong. In other words, that the, the person, the wrong thing that the person would say is that the pasuk is referring to a Jew who has relations with a non-Jewish woman and has a child from her. That's what it means, giving of your seed to Molech. That's the wrong interpretation of the pasuk that we would silence him for. The Mishnah says, Again, we know that the Torah reading and the Haftarot, the readings of the Haftarot would be accompanied by a translation into the vernacular, which at the time was Aramaic. So the story of Ruven and his indiscretion with Bilhah is read in Hebrew, but is not translated. Maaseh Tamar, Yekaum The event with Tamar, meaning Tamar and um, Yehuda, we read it and we also translate. Maaseh Egel Arishon, The description, Umitargem. The description of the Cheta Egel, of the sin of the golden calf, the first iteration of it in the book of Shemot, in the beginning of Kitisa, we read and translate. But The second iteration, the second version, we don't translate. And the reason is because um, 
when Aaron recounts the story, it sounds like the Egil, he threw the gold into the fire and the Egil came out. It sounds like it was a real thing, that there was some magic to it. So we don't translate that so people don't get the wrong idea. Berkat Kwanim, the blessing of the Kwanim, Maseh David ve'amnon, the events of David and Amnon. And um, it's talking about the story of Amnon and Tamar, where Amnon has his... Uh, it, it, the inappropriate relationship that he has with uh, with Tamar, the daughter of David, um, and the event of David with Bathsheba. Um, they're read, but we don't translate them into Aramaic so that people will not um, will not get the the uh, the details that are um, uh, that are. Uh, you know, that are in, in the story, they won't uh, focus on the salacious details, but the truth is that we don't even read that as a haftarah, and that's, the, the Bach says on the side, uh, in his, that it should say actually, David that they are neither read nor translated, because we don't actually read them as a haftarah at all. In Maftim Merkava, we don't have as a haftarah the Maser Merkava v'yecheskel, Rabbi Yehuda Matir, Rabbi Yehuda says we can, um, we can uh, uh, say it as a haftaran. We actually do on on uh, Shavuot. Rabbi Eliezer Omer and Maftirin behoda et Yerushalayim. Rabbi Eliezer says we don't ever uh, use as a haftarah. The pasuk says make known to Jerusalem her abominations. We don't use that as a haftarah because it's too offensive and uh, and negative on the Jewish people. So we don't read it as a haftarah. The Gemara says Tanu Rabbanan Rabbi Tadish Nekinu Mitagamin Veish Nekim Delo Mitagamin. There are some things that are read but not and translated. There are some things that are read and not translated. The Gemara has here Veish Lo Nekin Velo Mitagamin. There are some that are not read and not translated. And that says, Elo nekinu metargemit. These are the things that are read and translated. And it says, Balat akan nishpa siman. This is a siman for the different readings that are going to be listed here. The creation story is read and translated. Bishita, that's obvious. We know we're not supposed to start asking what's above, what's below, what's outside of space, what was before time, what will be after time. We're not supposed to ask these things. So, as it says in Masachet Chagigan, the Mishnah. So, so you might think that by translating it into Aramaic, you're going to entice people to try to ask these kinds of questions, right? So, therefore, the Gemara says, no, that we're not worried about that. We still translate it. The story of Lot and his two daughters and their indiscretion. We translated them. We read it and translated it. That should be obvious. You might have thought that maybe we wouldn't translate it because of the sensitivity to the honor of Avraham. We do anyway. Uh, the events of Tam, with Tamar and Yehuda, we read it and we translate it. You might have thought that maybe we should be concerned of the honor of Yehuda, not translate it. We, we, the conclusion is that no, actually it's a praise for Yehuda because in the end he admitted his wrongdoing and he corrected it. And therefore, it's a positive story. The story of the first Egel uh, the first description of the golden calf, we do read and we translate. So that should be obvious. Maybe you'll think it's too much of a disgrace on the Jewish people to read and translate it. It says, no, all the more so. It should, it's good for the Jewish people to read of their shameful moments. It brings them a kaparat, brings them an atonement. We read both the curses and the blessings in the Torah and we translate them. You might have thought that maybe it will cause people to be discouraged and feel down and negative because the klalot are so scary. 
it comes to tell you that no, we do read and translate them. All of the negative commandments and the punishments that go with them, we read them and we translate them. Why is that? That should be obvious. Obviously, we have to read the mitzvot and translate them for people to understand. But the thing is, you might have thought that if people hear the prohibitions and their punishments, then they'll end up serving God from fear instead of from love. And we don't want people to fear God, to, uh, to serve Hashem just to avoid punishment. So, uh, therefore, the, um, um, and, and, or as Rashi says, uh, in Rashi's version, it seems like he had a little bit of a different, uh, a different uh, uh, text, uh, because, um, and in fact, yeah, that's what the Bach has here, because it says that, with, with regarding to the, regard to the Bachot and Klalot, we had this, that maybe people will want Avan Yirad, will serve Hashem from love and fear, meaning love of the reward and fear of the punishment, that that's a reason to avoid translating the blessings and curses. And the answer is that, no, we translate them anyway. According to that, you wouldn't need this part. This part is superfluous. And in fact, it doesn't seem that Rashi had this part about translating or the um, prohibitions and the punishments. That Maybe this answer goes on the Bachot and Klalot. That the reason why you might think you wouldn't want to translate the blessings and curses is because that gives people the wrong motivation for serving Hashem. The event with Amnon and Tamar, where Amnon rapes Tamar, is read and translated according to this. The story of Avshalom is read and translated. It seems obvious. You might have thought that we should be concerned about the, uh, the honor of David. It comes to tell you that we, uh, we read and translate it. What about the story of the concubine in Giv'ah, where there was a huge civil war, where Binyamin tolerated horrible, immoral behavior in their midst, and there was a civil war between Binyamin and the other tribes at the end of the book of Shoftei. We read it and we translate it. You might have thought that we should be careful and worried about the honor of Shevet Binyamin. It comes to tell you that we're not worried about that. According to this, uh, we read and we translate the Torah of let Jerusalem know its abominations. Pshita, that should be obvious, but la pokemi de Rabbi Eliezer, we need to mention it to exclude Rabbi Eliezer's view. There was one, there was a case where a person went up to read in front of Rabbi Eliezer, make known to Jerusalem its abominations. He said, before you start talking about the in the the, uh, uh, the abominations of Jerusalem, why don't you check out your own mother's abominations? They went and they investigated this guy who was reading the Haftarah and they found that he actually had uh, some uh, sign of pops, possibly he was a mamzer, his mother had committed adultery. The in- interesting thing is that you see from this that back then the Haftarah was more fluid. A person could get up and read a Haftarah based on what they thought the Haftarah should be. It wasn't necessarily a fixed liturgy like we have today. Here are things that are read and not translated and it says, That's the sign for it. We read the story of Ruven with Bilha but we do not translate it. And there's a story about Rabbi Hanina ben Gamil he went to Chavul and the chazan of the of synagogue, meaning the gabai, or the person who was in charge of the uh, liturgy of the synagogue, was reading the passage about Ruven, and Rabbi Hanan ben Gamliel told the translator, only read the end part where it says that B'nai Yisrael were, that the children of the Vayu B'nai Yaakov, Shnei Masar, um, that B'nai Yaakov were, all, were 12, meaning skip the part that mentions uh, 
Reuven's indiscretion in your translation. And the Chachamim praised him for that. We read the reiteration of the story of the Egel that when Aaron tells the story to Moshe, but we don't translate it. What does it mean, the second version of the story? From when Moshe confronted Aaron about the Egel Azav until the, uh, he saw the state of the people and he had to correct the uh, sorry state of the people that they had uh, they'd fallen into as a result of the um, as a result of the Chetaeg. Uh, so that's from uh, that's from actually Shemot Lamid Bet Kaf Aleph to Kaf Hey is what it says is the section that you wouldn't translate then. Um, Tanya says in the right of Rishon Ben Elazar Omer Leolam Hey Adam. A person should always be very careful about his responses. Because as a result of the answer that Aaron gave to Moshe, the heretics broke out and uh, and took it took the uh, statement of Aaron out of context. Because Aaron said, "I threw the gold into the fire, and this egel came out, implying that the egel was a real thing, was alive, it had power, and that gave people the wrong idea to think that there was some reality to idolatry." We read the Berkat Konim, we don't translate it. What's the reason? Because it says Hashem should show favor to you. We say that Hashem does not show favor. He's always just and fair and everything. He doesn't show favor. And even though the rabbis explain that the reason he shows favor is because we excel in mitzvot, that won't be obvious to a person. They'll think Hashem shows favoritism to the Jewish people, so we don't translate that. David Amnon, the story of David and Amnon, with, uh, there it says... Uh, uh, there it says we don't read it and we also do not translate it. Now, according to, um, according to the grand aside, he says it should say, um, it should say, it shouldn't say lo. It should say Nikrin Vilomitargamin. It's read and not translated. Didn't we say before that we read it and we translate it? And the Mishnah said we read it and translate it. Here it says we read it and we don't translate it. The parts that it just says Amnon, we can translate because it's not a disrespect to David. But the parts that it says Amnon ben David, we don't translate because they're, those psukim uh, reflect poorly on David. The rabbis taught, Sukim that are written in the Torah that are written in a very disgraceful kind of a language, a language that is very uh, negative, we try to change them into positive. Like when it talks about women being uh, being uh, taken by the enemy, it says, someone else is going to take the wife. We change it to Yishkalena. Yishkalena is more sexualized of a term. Yishkalena is a cleaner term. When it says, that you're going to have hemorrhoids. We use the word, which has is a little bit of a lighter language. Um, it's a less explicit term for hemorrhoids. Um, in, in, when the pasuk, and in all of these cases, we have kriyuktiv. We have that the written version of the pasuk has the word that is negative, that is more negative, and the way we read it is more uh, positive. So it says chiryonim, which means the the uh, dung of the doves. They change to divyonim, the stuff that comes out, the, the stuff that emerges from the doves, because it was talking about how the, um, the Jewish people were starving during the famine, they ate the dung of doves, so they change it to that which flows from doves, instead of a word that's more explicit as dung. Instead of saying to eat their excrement and to drink their urine, it uses language a little bit cleaner, to say, um, to say, to eat their excrement, the water of their legs. So it's a little bit more 
of an indirect language than the previous one. Le, uh, th- then the uh, the next example of a pasuk where we change the language in order to make it seem a little bit uh, uh, cleaner. It says that that they made the house of the Baal when they destroyed it into lemocharot, into a kind of a place where people go to the bathroom, right? So they tend to lemotzaot for going out. In other words, lemocharot was considered to be more of an explicit language, and. Uh, and motzaot is uh, is also excrement, but it's a little bit of a cleaner language. Rabbi Shubin Kochalmer, motzaot kishman. says there we don't change the language because we want to say things that are gnai lavodat kochavim that are insulting for idolatry. In all the other cases, we're trying to not uh, say a more negative thing about the Jewish people, so we make the language cleaner. But when we're dis- when we are talking about idolatry, we can use the more explicit and negative form of the term. Rav Nachman, uh, that's, and he's obviously, so Rabbi Yoshev Kochah is disagreeing with the other rabbis about that. Rav Nachman, all mocking is prohibited, except for mocking idolatry, the Sharia, that's permitted, the Khtiv, as it says, and because we see that the Navi makes fun of the idolatry, because it, when it talks about the, uh, the idols falling and being destroyed, it says, Kara Bel, that Bel bent over, Kores Nevo, and, uh, and Nevo collapsed, and it's, it's describing them as if they're going to the bathroom. And then it says, Karisu, and again, another pasuk, describing the conquering of Avodazah, Karisu, Karu Yachdav, Lo Yachlu Malet. It's describing them like a Malet Masad. It's like they can't go to the bathroom. They're constipated or something like that. Um, it's making fun of the idols that they are having problems going to the bathroom. Rabbi Yanai, Amar Rabbi Yanai said from here, another example, Le'eglot Bet Aven, <coughs> it says the uh, the uh, calves of Bet Aven Yaguru Shechan Shomron Ki Aval Alav Amo Uchmarav Alav Yagilu Al Kvodo Ki Galam Menu. So they're saying that the uh, the priests and the people who once celebrated these idols are now going to be mourning for them on their honor that is lost. Don't read as Kvodo, the honor of these idols was lost. That they, they were constipated and now their excrement has come out. This is a very funny thing. A Jew is allowed to say to an idolater, take your idol and put it in your shintav, which means put it in your rear end, basically. B'shintav shelo. If a person has a bad reputation, you're allowed to insult him with Gimel Vashin, which basically means saying that his mother was uh, a woman of ill repute. On the other hand, somebody who has a good reputation, you can praise him. And one who does praise a good person, blessings will rest on his head. Obviously, that is a way to end the parak with something positive instead of something negative, uh, rather than uh, rather than ending it with a insulting people, ending the parak with positive thing, which doesn't really need to be said. Of course, you're allowed to praise somebody who is good, but we don't want to end on a negative note.